It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, today Rick is continuing in his series on experiencing Jesus, and today is Experiencing Jesus Part 7, in a sermon that Rick has entitled, Why Scrape the Bottom? We're in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 13. So turn in your Bibles, and let's join Rick. In its early years, the Internet was labeled the Information Superhighway. Now, we have blown by that label so far because it has now become the single most important tool for most of us to live our lives. I mean, we, we organize and keep our finances straight with it. We use it as a tool for shopping. We promote our business. We continue our education. There's social networking. Some here this, this morning may even have found your spouse on the Internet. But for all the advantage that the Internet has gives to us, most of you know it has its dark side. Just ask anybody who has been hit by a Trojan virus. In case you don't know, a Trojan virus gets its name from the legend uh, about the Greek warfare in that it promises one thing, but it delivers something else. So you know when the Greeks and the Trojans, at least legend has it, that when they were fighting each other at the gates of Troy, the Greeks apparently gave up, left a big wooden hollow horse at the gate, but they had soldiers hidden on the inside, and then apparently they got in their navy ships and sailed away. Troy thought they had won the battle, brought the the horse inside to celebrate their victory, and as you know, the legend says that in the middle of the night, the Greek navy turned around, came back, the soldiers came out of the horse, opened the city gates, and the destruction of Troy began. And that's what a Trojan virus does. It offers something free. It offers something very attractive, but it's got a malicious intent to it. So it might erase information on your hard drive. Uh, It might steal your passwords or your credit card numbers. It might make use of your email email contacts to propagate itself, uh, or even hijack your computer like the city of Atlanta experienced this last week, and hold it for ransom. Trojans are often called a back door, meaning that it opens up the back of your computer for anybody to do pretty much what they want to with it, most like, or kind of like, if you had left the back door of your house open, anybody then could come in and do what they wanted to there. So the risks are so high on the Internet, protection is a must. Enter in antivirus software. Good protection will not only identify a virus, it will also quarantine the virus and then eliminate or delete it. So yeah, the the Internet's got a hostile side to it. As wonderful as it is, it's got a hostile side to it, and the naive better beware. And isn't that the typical attitude most of us have towards life? We know there are risks out there. We know our own vulnerabilities, and so we take measures to protect ourselves. We don't want to become seduced by something that looks good but has got a malicious intent. We don't want to be overrun and find that we've lost control because we've allowed a breach in our own personal security. 
And yet, that very normal and natural desire for security can place us at odds with our Savior's agenda in this generation. In other words, by wanting to reduce our risks, by wanting to reduce our vulnerabilities, we can easily end up opposing the very work of God, the kingdom of God work that's going on right around us. Now, some of you are going, really? Yeah, that's possible. How? Well, grab your Bibles if you would. I want you to turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. We'll continue in our study of it, beginning at verse 13 down to verse 17 this morning, where we have now this morning in front of us the third of three intimate encounters that individuals had with Jesus. And these intimate encounters are designed to demonstrate the power and authority of the kingdom of God to change a person's life. Now, do you remember the first two? The first one was the leper who came to Jesus and he found cleansing. This repulsive individual found cleansing by the power and authority of Jesus Christ. That was the first one. Second one was the paralytic. His friends brought him. Why? His problem was that he was paralyzed. He could not move. He found freedom by the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Now this morning we're going to be introduced to a third individual, a businessman who has compromised. You probably know the story really well. We are on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a town called Capernaum, and it's become, as we've mentioned already, this is Jesus' home base. He keeps coming back here, but then he goes out away from here. Verse 13 tells us that on this particular morning, Jesus is doing what he often did, and that is he's teaching the crowds that have gathered around him. And as we've noticed, one part of the ministry of our Savior was that of being a teacher. Being around him meant that you're going to receive instructions. But being around him also meant experiencing explosions. Because what our Savior does at times is frankly startling. And the concussions of what he does are literally life-changing. Like Right here, the bombshell that Jesus drops out on the public road. Now, before we get into it, a couple of things about background that will be really helpful. First of all, the town of Capernaum is not just on the edge of the lake. It's also, on, it's also there where a major trade route runs right through the town. So any of the trade going north or coming in from the north to Israel is coming right through Capernaum. It's like putting it in a strategic place right next to an interstate highway. This town also had, because of its position on the lake, a vibrant fishing uh, business. It also had good agriculture going on. So when there's robust economy, the government is going to stick its fingers into the economic pie in the form of taxes. So right here in the middle of this major transportation and commercial hub, Rome has set up a branch office of its tax collection agency and the mastermind that is behind all of the legal and some illegal takedowns is a guy by the name of Levi. Now, one other thing to, to, to understand, it's important to appreciate the Roman tax system, real different than ours, in that they use what's called tax farming which is somewhat similar to a business franchise. So every district around the Roman Empire was assessed a fixed tax figure that had to be given to them every single year. Then the rights to collect those taxes were sold to the highest bidder. 
So each year, the buyer of, quote, the license to collect taxes had to deliver to Rome that fixed amount of money. Yet anything above and beyond that amount was his to keep, which meant the opportunity for extortion was enormous. And tax collectors backed up their claims with the Roman army. So that's why it's so shocking what Jesus does in verse 14. Look at what he says. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Why did Jesus ask Levi to follow him? This is like scraping the bottom of the, of the barrel. Because in the eyes of the community, Levi is scum. Levi is a disgusting individual. Levi is a morally compromised man. In fact, people hated him. They hated him for pretty much three reasons. One, because he was dishonest. Tax collectors were notorious for making up their own rules to get their hands on your money. The second reason they hated him, it was he was unpatriotic. Because in his line of work, you had to have a close working relationship with the government of Rome. And what kind of Jew would work with the conquerors who are now occupying our nation? Third reason he was hated is that he was just bluntly carnal. Gold had become his god. He had sold out to the almighty dollar. And yet it's not only shocking who Jesus called, isn't it also shocking that Levi accepted? Look at the end of verse 14. And Levi rose and followed. Interesting. Luke, in talking about this very same event in Luke chapter 5 and verse 28, says, Levi left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. In other words, this was a decisive act. When Levi walked away from the tax booth, there was no going back. It was a radical choice based on Jesus' invitation to him. Now, here was a man who I am sure people cursed, who people prayed that God would judge him, and yet he simply walks away from his business to follow Jesus Christ. Who would have thought Levi would have any spiritual hunger or interest whatsoever? Now, the surprises of the day aren't finished, though. There's another one. For starting in verse 15, we have the bombshell at the private reception. Look at verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Let, let the details soak in here for just a moment. How surprising where we find Jesus. I mean, he is now in Levi's home. The guest of honor at a, at a dinner party. In fact, again, remember I mentioned that Luke 5 talks about this. He adds the detail that was a huge banquet being thrown. In other words, Levi is so thrilled about the change that has occurred in his life, he wants to celebrate this. And he wants others to hear the good news of what has happened to him because he, so now he wants them to get to know Jesus too. But understand something. Levi's social network 
is not the attendance roster of the local synagogue. Rather, the guest list for this party is like a guest list for an extended mafia family. (laughs) They know, these people all know and socialize with with each other because of of their common practices of extortion and bribery and violence and cutthroat business tactics. That's why they're friends. That's why they came. Now notice something else about verse 15. Mark twice mentions the number of people. There were many of them. In other words, the the place was packed out because of Levi's invitation and because these kind of people found Jesus to be compelling. Now, back into the story. As would be common in that day and culture, many in the community who were not invited came and were watching from the fringe. And standing there were the moral watchdogs of that day, the Pharisees, and folks, they are not happy campers at what they're saying. I mean, to them, how surprising it is that Jesus is here. And notice in verse 16, so they they challenge the appropriateness of Jesus eating with those who they consider to be morally compromised. Verse 16, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now understand something, that word sinner there, That is used in this passage as a title that was often just kind of slapped on people who didn't follow the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, it wasn't as if they had directly violated an Old Testament commandment as much as they weren't in the synagogue on Saturdays. Or their lives didn't look spiritual in the way that the Pharisees and scribes had decided spirituality should look like. And so because their behavior didn't measure up to the standards that the Pharisees had set, they were considered to be sinners. So notice our Lord's reply. And by the way, notice he does not try to excuse himself. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say something like, oh yes, I know, these are sickening and sordid businessmen in our, com- our community, but I really couldn't refuse Levi's invitation. I just kind of got caught up in all this. No, he doesn't do that at all. Look at his response at the start of verse 17. So when Jesus heard what was going on there at the fringe, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus is bluntly and candidly stating that he has come to be with these kinds of people. That he is right where he should be, doing exactly what he should be doing. He is like a doctor, passionate about helping those who know that they are sick, finding healing. Now notice carefully the last statement of verse 17. I came, Jesus says, Not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not interested in reaching out to those who see themselves as having it all together and don't need any help. Rather, he initiates to spend time with those who spiritually have been labeled by this term sinner, who are considered to be socially 
disgusting and morally dangerous individuals. By the way, does that surprise anybody here? <laughs> it should. I mean, do you think it was appropriate for our Lord to be smack dab in the middle of a party like this? I mean, what if somebody drank a little too much because there was a beer pong competition going on? What if someone suggested that everybody get up and begin to dance? What if somebody told a dirty joke? By the way, sidebar, do you know one of the problems with dirty jokes? Most of them are funny. Mark tells this story that we might experience Jesus by getting into the middle of the action with him, to feel the setting, to, to, to hear the verbal exchanges that are going on, and to appreciate the tension of the moment. And as we enter into the story, in fact, if we enter into any story that, we're re- that we read in a book, typically we find ourselves identifying with one of the characters. And we realize that if we had been there, here, Mark 2, 13 to 17, we probably would have reacted like someone there in that story. So in these verses, which one of these characters do you most identify with? See, there's one important truth, and this is a disturbing truth, that Jesus is trying to model and reveal by his behavior to everybody in that room, and by the way, everybody in this room as well. And the disturbing truth is this. God's compassionate heart seeks to rescue those who are compromised. And that's typically shocking to us. Why? Because much like our response to virus protection on our computer, we want to identify, we want to quarantine, and then we want to eliminate it. And so we see people in the world much the same way. We've decided that their their lifestyle poses a threat. It's a risk to us. And so we don't want anything to do with them. And so out of protection, we've isolated ourselves from them. We seek to delete them. And then in the process to justify our actions, we might even slap a label on them, sinner. But did you notice Jesus never models that kind of behavior? He doesn't. In fact, he had the reputation of hanging out with the kinds of people that would make most churchgoers really nervous. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. In fact, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, after reaching out to another tax collector, a guy, short little guy by the name of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus has no problem, at least what looks like, scraping the bottom of the barrel. His compassionate heart moves him to reach out and to connect to those that have been deeply compromised. Jesus loves to hang out at a party with those who are sick, but are wrestling on the inside with the possibility that maybe he just might be able to help them get well. And there's a powerful practicality to this little story. But the practicality of it is only going to be seen if we choose to be serious about entering in and experience this story in a life-changing way. The practicality is seen that Mark wants us to ask two questions. First, do I see people as needing rescue? Back into the text. 
Look at verse 14. Jesus saw, saw Levi. Look at verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. So notice, both Jesus and the Pharisees saw the exact same people, but they saw something different. The scribes were viewing others by their outward appearance. Jesus was was looking at the heart. The scribes judged by behavior. Jesus was going down deeper into the struggle of a person's soul. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ then like Him, we need to look beyond the external appearance of somebody else which may look irreligious or immoral or affluent or crass or or hardened. See, many of them, just like Levi, are caught up in the choices that they have made and they know it's shredding their soul on the inside. They just don't know where to turn or they have given up totally. And Levi eagerly responded to a compassionate invitation from Jesus. Is that the way we see people out there? See, unfortunately, so many of us see the people in the world as the enemy. My friends, they are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And it gets practical. I mean, what do you think when you go into the mall or you go into a restaurant and you see an individual there that's wearing all black? Maybe body piercings and tats in every conceivable and probably some inconceivable locations. Maybe a foul message that's printed on the back of their their T-shirt. Folks, are they the enemy or are they someone that I feel compassion for because potentially they would be able to experience the healing touch of Jesus Christ? Are there others that we're tempted to see as the enemy? Someone who struggles or has already embraced homosexuality as a lifestyle. Those who want unregulated pornography in our culture. Someone who voted for the other person as president. Someone of a different skin color than us. Someone who disregards every moral standard that we stand for and we see it because they're cheating on their spouse. They will lie under oath and they'll constantly swindle their customers. Are they the enemy? Really? And can you even imagine in your mind's eye that they would throw a party because they would have, they could have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ? You can believe that and see it if you understand the truth that God's compassionate heart seeks to rescue those who have compromised. That that's his heart. And when you understand that truth, it will change the way we see people. Well, there's a second question, though. Not only do I see people as needing rescue, second question, do I treat people as needing rescue? See, if we're convinced that Jesus Christ came to bring healing to hurting people, then that becomes our mission as well. It becomes the way we begin to treat others. RBC's mission statement. Print on a card. You'll see it up on the screen of time, on the bulletin and all. It ends with a statement that we exist to reach our world with the claims of Christ. Friends, are we serious about that? 
If we are not serious about it, then you know what? We need to delete that phrase from the mission statement. But if we believe it, then that means Jesus' mission becomes my mission. So instead of trying to place people into isolation away from us and stay away from them, rather we start spending time thinking about how to creatively get close to them so that they can get close to Jesus themselves. But as someone has said, people don't care what what we know until they know that we care. And the invitation to examine the claims of Christ is best received by others when we've taken the time to honestly love them. I mean, after all, just think of what happened to so many of you here in this room. In fact, take a moment, if you would. uh, We're here in Mark 2. Turn further back in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What has happened to us Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Paul writes and says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the Pharisee inside of each one of us says, Yeah, get them, God. And then we come to verse 11. But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Which means none of us are really any different from the most nauseating person that we can imagine. Only we never got caught. Or we never had the courage to follow. Jesus Christ stepped in and saved us before we could do it. So if he really judged others as somehow being unfit for Jesus to rescue because we have set ourselves apart as being somehow better than they are? Maybe our sins are not as gross as Paul lists here in 1 Corinthians 6, but are we any less a sinner because of the lies we tell or the gossip we share or the pride we have because of what I know or how good we are that we look on the outside? It really makes no difference, really. Tony Campolo is a... Christian author and university professor, and he tells of being up late one night in Honolulu. He was there because of a conference, but flying from the east coast of the United States all the way to Honolulu, the going across that many time zones had really disrupt, disrupted his sleep. He tells a story of going up a side street away from where all the hotels are, and he found a little place that was still open. He says, I go in and I I take a seat next to the counter and I wait to be served. And it was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. He said, I didn't even want to touch the menu. I was afraid of what might crawl out if I would touch it. So the fat guy behind the counter comes up and says, what do you want? And I said, well, I want a cup of coffee and a donut. And 
So he pours a cup of coffee and then takes his grimy hand and wipes it on his dirty apron and reaches up for a donut on the shelf behind him. I really would have appreciated it if he, if he had used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper, but he didn't. So there I sat, munching my donut and drinking my coffee at 3.30 in the morning when the door of the diner suddenly swung open and to my discomfort in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. And there was such a, it was such a small spot that there was no other place to sit but on either side of me on the counter. Their talk was loud and crude and I felt completely out of place and I was just about ready to try to make my getaway when I overheard the woman next to me say, tomorrow's my birthday and I'm going to be 39. One of the other ladies, a friend, responded in a very nasty tone and said, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? I mean, what do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? The woman next to me said, come on, why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life, so why should I have one now? And Campolo said, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat there and waited until all the ladies had left. And then I called the fat guy behind the counter over. And I said, do they come in here every night? He says, yeah. The next one, the lady next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night. What do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say that you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? And this big smile broke out on the guy's face. He answered with measured delight. Hey, that's great. I like it. That's a good idea. Then he turns to his wife who's in the back cooking and yells at her to come out. He says, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow is Agnes's birthday. And he wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. And the wife comes out of the back room and she's all smiley. And she says, oh, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those really kind and nice people. And nobody ever does anything kind or nice for her. So look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 in the morning. I'll decorate the place. I'll even bring the birthday cake. No way, says Harry. That was the fat guy behind the counter. No way. The birthday cake's my idea. I'll make it. Fine. So 2.30 the next morning, I show up back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decorations at a store. I made a big sign out of, out of pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. Well, the woman who did the cooking, the wife who did the cooking in the back, must have gotten the word out on the street. Because by 3.15, it looked like every prostitute in Honolulu was in the diner. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. And at 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swings open. In comes Agnes with her friend. And I had everybody to re- ready. Evidently, I-, I was kind of the MC of this whole thing. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday. And Campolo says, I have never seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her friend had to grab her arm because her knees started to buckle. She led her over to sit on one of the stools along the counter, and we all broke into happy birthday. And when we came to the end of that last line, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, 
her eyes started to tear up. And when suddenly she saw the birthday cake with all the candles, she broke down and began to cry. Harry, typical guy, didn't know what to do. So he gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Just come on, blow out the candles. Then he hands her a knife and says, cut the cake. Agnes, come on, cut the cake. Well, Agnes looked down at the cake, and then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, if it's okay with you, I mean, if it's okay, can't... What I want to ask you, is it okay if we just keep the cake for a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right now? Harry shrugged, said, sure, it's okay. You don't want to eat the cake? Keep the cake. Take the cake home. She said, can I really? I mean, I just lived down the street a few blocks, and she turned to me and said, I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carried it like it was the Holy Grail. And she slowly walked out the door. And we all sat there motionless. And when the door closed, there was stunned silence in the place. And not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we all pray? (laughs) And looking back on it now, it does seem a little strange for a university professor to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But at that moment, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Campolo says, so I prayed for Agnes. I prayed that God would restore to her what so many men had taken that her life would be changed, that God would be good to her. Amen. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with real hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony said, It was one of those moments when the Holy Spirit just gives you the right words to say. And I answered him, Harry, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry waited a moment, and then with almost sneered, he said, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. I've got news for us all. That's the kind of church that the heart of Jesus came to create. Let's pray. Father, apart from your supernatural power and work in our lives, we will never see people differently. We will never treat people differently. We will remain in our isolation out of fear, not faith. Out of self-interest, not out of being mission-focused to penetrate our world because of who has done so much for us. 
Father, forgive me, forgive us. For wanting to stay so separated, so distant. When you have given each one of us in this room a sphere of influence of those that are very Levi-like. That you want us to be very Jesus-like too. And so Father, whether they are in our own family, whether they are in our neighborhood living next door to us, whether they're at work, at school, the gym where we work out, maybe some buddies that we recreate with. Lord, would you by your grace change how we see others and then change how we treat others that it becomes a priority in our behavior, our time management, our money management. Not because it's the right thing to do, it's because that's what Jesus did. And we want to be more like him. So Father, would you give us, by your grace, the power and the ability by our lives changing to represent you well in this generation. And we ask that in the name of the compassionate heart of Jesus who came to seek and save that which is lost. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.